The title of my message today is Victory or Defeat. And uh, I had a situation in my family, and it was tough to determine what was victory and what was defeat. I tested positive for COVID on the 19th of, of uh, that was back in April. And then about three days into that, I was out for my one hour walk that you're allowed to have outside. And I remembered that my winter tires were still in my car. The day before I contracted COVID, I had actually had my tires changed. So I brought my winter tires in. That was about all the strength I had. And I left them at the front entrance. And I thought I locked the car door, but I hadn't. Because the next morning, my wife went off to a physio appointment. She never did catch COVID. And... She go, came in, somebody broke into the car. Well, they didn't break in. I left it unlocked. And I, they took my coins that I had for parking. And they got into the glove compartment. And I had some gift cards for free golf on Prince Edward Island. And I had just put them in there, getting them ready for summer vacation. All gone. Probably $300 worth of golf cards. And then I had some things in the console and my sunglasses were in there they were gone and so it was pretty much defeat for me but then I remembered something seven years ago I had colorectal cancer and I had a couple of surgeries and the surgeon said you should always keep a pair of underwear just in your car just in case you might ever need it the need has never arised arisen but I had this old pair of underwear in a plastic bag. So that guy took everything out of the console, and I'm sure he then got home and he starts looking to see what treasures he got out of this guy's car, and here's his old pair of underwear. So it was victory for me. Now, depending on how you grew up and what you were taught, you can have some pretty strong preconceptions about the nature and the character of God. But Paul is going to challenge us as we finish up this series on the 8th chapter of Romans. And what he's going to do is going to be hard for some of us to hear. And and that could be because of the circumstances that you're going through in your life right now. It could also be what you were taught about God when you were growing up. But I hope before you leave here today, you will have a full understanding of the love of God. So Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to celebrate, excuse me, separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Paul writes this, you can see the sense of urgency in his voice because he's desperate for us to understand the love of God more completely. Because if we understand that, then it will make all the difference in the world. It's difficult for us to fully understand the love of God because the word love has become cheapened in our world today. Just think about the way that we use the word love. But earlier this week, I was talking with the man, and he was explaining how he loves McDonald's coffee more than Tim Horton's coffee. And his argument was convincing enough that I now have one of those little sticker cards for McDonald's, and I'll go there a few times. And maybe you'll hear someone say, I, I love my new shoes. Or someone will say, oh, I love the new mattress we have for our bed. It's so much more comfortable. And then kids will say, I love craft dinner. But then on the other hand, we will say, I love God. So it becomes confusing because we use the word to describe so many different things. And here's what's interesting. As Paul writes to us about the love of God, he has at his disposal several different words that he could use to describe what love is like. And they all come from the Greek language. So we're just going to touch on a few of those here this morning. Words that he could have chosen. He could have chosen the word eros, which is a love that is based on feeling. And typically we talk about this word in relation to relationships that we have, romantic relationships. But it's actually really a love that's an emotional love. And that's not how many of us think of love. We think of it as something that we can control. And maybe when you were growing up, your parents fell out of love. They didn't mean to, but it just happened to them. So we have this idea of love being very circumstantial, based on what's happening around us. Paul could have used a word like that. He also could have used the word philia, which is a love that is based on mutual benefits. It's a good word. It's a positive word that typically describes, you know, our friendships or a brother-sister relationship. It communicates loyalty. It communicates faithfulness. And it's the word Paul uses later on in Romans chapter 12 when he talks to us about the fact that God loved us so much that he actually gave us the gift of his son. But a love like this could become very conditional where I love you because of what you did for me, and you love me because of what I did for you. But should you stop doing something for someone, you stop doing something for me, or I stop doing something for you, then we lose that love. And we see that happen in relationships. But there's another word that God could have used, and that is the word agape. And this is a selfless, sacrificial, it's an unconditional love. It's a love that's not based on anything that's happening in our lives. It has no expiration date. It doesn't come with this long list of requirements. It's a love that loves even when there's nothing to be given back in return. 
So would you like to guess which of these words Paul uses in Romans 8 to describe God's love for us? But it's the agape love. It's the same word that we read in John 3.16 when he said God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. So when Paul is conveying the love of God to us, what he's talking about is a love that's selfless, that is unconditional, and it's a love that's sacrificial. But the problem for us is that it's hard for us to accept that kind of love. And the problem isn't that God doesn't love us that way. The problem is that we don't see it and that we don't believe it. And then as a result of that, we don't act upon it. We don't receive it. Thus, we're not changed by it. And one of the realities that is that most of us haven't experienced this kind of agape love in our relationships here on earth. Now, I don't want to be depressing, but think for a moment. Why do the people in your life love you? Uh, is, chances are, almost everyone in your life and in my life loves us because... There's a, a because tied to it. They love you because you're cute, or maybe they love you because you're funny, or because you're successful, or they love you because you love them, and maybe they love you because you're related and you don't really have any choice. There's always this because attached to love, and we've grown accompanied. Actually, we've grown accompanied to that. So, if you go to a drugstore and you go to the Hallmark card section, you will actually see these relational cards, and you'll open them up, and you'll see on the front cover that it says something like, I love you, and then you open the card, and it says, because, and then there's this list of reasons why you're getting this card. Here's what you do for me Here, that makes me love you. So it can be very selfish, and it can also put a lot of pressure on the relationship. Because what if the because stops being a reality? So here, here's a card my wife gave me. Like, who is the husband who's such a good friend, who's always the one with the cutest rear end? Oh, I wasn't supposed to read that part. But who is the husband who's funny, smart, whose manly interior hides his soft heart? Who is the husband who's loved a whole lot? Who is the husband who's simply the best, the one who distinctly stands out from the rest? Surely you guessed it, the answer's not heard. The huggable husband who's holding this card. Happy birthday. And, and, and that's so true. We, we will... Wait. I didn't mean the card. <laughs> Hopefully she's watching at home. I got in trouble the first service when I used this. But... But what if someone loves you because you're beautiful or have a cute rear end, and then that works for a while, but then the beauty fades? What if someone loves you because you're funny, and then after you're married, they realize you're just annoying? <laughs> what if someone marries you because you're successful, and then you fail? What happens when things change? Does the love change as well? So as we study the love of God, we're going to find that love in its purest form has no because. God loves you, period. And that's so hard for us to accept because we think that there's something else, something that we can do to control or, or to earn God's love. But there's no because. And if you insist on having a because, you could say it like this. God loves you because he loves you. 
Now, some of you need to hear this because that's not your preconception of God. You were brought up being taught that God will love you more if you do something, or maybe if you didn't do something. And some of you may be here right now because you think that God is going to love you more because you came to church rather than staying home. Or maybe that God is going to love you more because you give 10% of your income to the church. God doesn't love that way. And that's tough for us because oftentimes we've been exposed to a lot of guilt and shame in our relationship with God. And as a result of that, we think that his love is determined by what we do and don't do. But God doesn't love you more because you haven't done the bad things. He doesn't love the people that have done the bad things less. So here's the reality. It's all level here. There isn't one person in this room that has done anything to deserve the love of God more than anyone else in this room. That's not how God works. He loves you because he loves you. Now, you might have heard this from D.A. Carson, but he described God's love this way. He said, picture Charles and Susan walking down the beach hand in hand at the end of the school year. They've kicked off their sandals and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. So what does he mean when he says, I love you? Well, he mean, may mean something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile takes my breath away. Your wonderful sense of humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. But Carson says what he certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have a terrible case of bad breath. It would embarrass a large herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. And your nose is so huge, you belong in the cartoons. And your hair is so greasy, it could oil an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. I love you. That's not what he means. And when God says, I love you, what does he mean? Is it? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, the witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be a boring place without you. I love you. That's not what God means because this has been, to a degree, our therapeutic approach to God. When you hear God's love talked about, it's often with the idea in mind that God loves you because you are so special. You're beautiful. You're smart. People like you. And God loves you too. But that's not it. Instead, when God loves you, here's what he's saying, according to Carson. That morally speaking, you are the people of bad breath. The huge nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly. But I love you anyway. Not because you're attractive, not because you've earned it or deserve it. I love you because I love you. So being loved like that, it has the power to change everything. But remember this, you've always been loved by, like that. And he desperately wants you to know that. It comes down to whether or not we'll receive it, believe it, and have faith in it. And that's how God's love works. 
But Paul knows the difference that this can make, so he has this sense of urgency as he writes these words. He desperately wants people to have their eyes opened and embrace this. So in verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now if that last phrase was on its own, we could probably come up with quite a list of people and things Maybe you feel like your health is against you. Maybe you feel like your spouse is against you. Maybe you feel like your finances are against you. But Paul says, if God is for us, then really who could be against us? And he begins that passage with a question. And he says, what shall we say in response to this? So he's actually looking back to the previous passage which we studied last week where he said, in all things, God works together for good for those who love the Lord and have been called according to his purpose. So God receives it, he makes it into something for our good, and then he sends it on its way. If that's the power that God has, then he can take everything that comes at us and he can work it for good. So then who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, now that's kind of an interesting phrase because it points back to the Old Testament and it's the exact wording of what Abraham did for God. Do you remember the story? God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac for me. Now of course Isaac is spared, but Abraham demonstrated his love and loyalty to God in actually willing to not even spare his own son's life. So Paul uses the same language which the Jew who knew the Old Testament would certainly catch, the same language of what Abraham did for him to describe what he does for us. So just think about it. When Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac for God, we read that story and we think, like this is insane. He is going to offer his son out of his love and loyalty for God? And Paul flips that around and he says, yep, that's what God did for you. And we keep reading and in verse, going on in verse 32, he said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So what Paul's doing here is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God didn't even spare his own son, then doesn't it follow that he's surely going to give us whatever we need? Is there anything more valuable to God than his son? Just imagine how the parents of the 19 children and even the two teachers that were killed in that horrible massacre in Uvalde, just imagine how they feel. They have lost the most important thing in their lives. So there isn't anything more valuable to God. And if he's willing to give what's most valuable, then doesn't it follow that we can trust him with all that other stuff? Doesn't it follow that even if we don't understand or even when it seems that things aren't going our way or, or even when we're trying to determine his love based on the circumstances, doesn't it follow that if God had done this one great thing, then all these other things are going to be generously taken care of. So Paul's making it clear that God's love for you has already been proven by what happened on the cross. 
You'll see what John Stott said. He said, the cross is a guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. So it's the guarantee. It determines his love for us and our value to him. A number of years ago, our family went to PEI for summer vacation, and I took my set of 1971-72 Opeachy hockey cards with me because I knew that there was a sports card store in Charlottetown, and I was looking to sell my cards. And based on the book value of the cards and the tremendous condition they were in, I collected these as a kid, looked after them. My mother stored them in the attic of our house and kept them in pristine condition. So I was thinking, okay, I need to allow some for him to make a profit when he sells them. He'll offer me $1,000 to $1,200 for these cards. So he looks at my meticulously preserved cards, looks them over, and he offered me $350. I was so insulted. And I said, don't you think you could raise that a little bit? There's one card in that set that's worth $350. And then he went on to say, here's how I determine the value of your cards. The offer is based on how much someone is willing to pay for the cards. And he would get something more than $350 and make a little bit on it. And so I thought, well, I guess I can't argue with that. You know how much it's worth based on how much someone is willing to pay for it. Now, hockey cards are worth a lot more now. They're really hot. I should go back and see what he'd do for me. But when we look at God's love for us, it means that our value and our worth to him was forever defined by the cross. And if it's true that value is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for something, what does that say about you? that God gave his only son to die in your place, to die in my place. That's how much worth we have in God's eyes. And then Paul goes on to write, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. So God is the one who makes us right. That's what justifies means. And in Revelation chapter 12, Satan is referred to as the accuser. And he is accusing God's children day and night. And he might be doing it right now to some of you. He's whispering accusations. He's trying to discourage you by making you think that you're not worthy of God's love. And the truth is, you aren't. None of us are worthy of God's love. But that's the point of this passage. It's not that you've earned it or are worthy of it. It's that God's the one who justifies. It's not because of anything you've done to make yourself right. It's because he, through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, is the one who makes things right. But then in verse 34, he goes on, well, who then is the one who condemns? So who could possibly condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So Jesus died, he rose again, he's now at the right hand of God, and he's interceding on our behalf. And then verse John uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So this is one who speaks to God in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So do you think 
anybody is going to dare to bring any accusation against you when your defense attorney is Jesus Christ. Just imagine that you're sitting at the defendant's table in a courtroom, and everybody is asked to stand because the judge is coming in, and you look at the judge, and you recognize the judge, and the judge is God, and he's carrying this really thick file folder, and then you notice, and your name's on it, and God even says, man, this thing's heavy, and he plops it down on the desk, and you're thinking, this isn't going to be good, but you've already pleaded guilty to those things, and now you stand as the charges are about to be read, but you look over to your right, and, and there's Jesus standing beside you as your attorney, and God opens up your file, and then he starts off. He says, on the charges of, and then he reads a sin that you've committed. And Jesus says, I paid for that one. And then God reads another charge, and Jesus says, I, I paid for that one too. And they go through that whole file in that way. Each time God reads a charge, your attorney speaks up on your behalf. He intercedes for you. He is the atoning sacrifice. And he says, I paid for that one. Because of that, we have verse 35. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? So if Christ, our Savior, is the one who defends us, if he's the one who's interceding for us, if he's the one making our defense to God, then what in the world could possibly separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do you hear what Paul is saying here? He's saying God's love for you isn't determined by the circumstances that you now face. And some of us, we want to do that. We want to determine and measure God's love for us. We get out a tape measure and we measure the conditions and the circumstances in our lives. And we'll say, well, if God loves me, then why is this happening in my life? And Paul says, no, no, no. Conditions and circumstances aren't how you determine God's love for you. The cross is how you determine God's love for you. And we have a hard time with this. And I know how easy it is to slip into, but we start to think that when life is going well, that God must really love us. And then when life isn't going well for us, we feel as if he's sitting up there in heaven and he's just making problems for us. Or we see someone else who seems to have everything going so well for them in their lives and they aren't even in the church. And we say, what's going on with that, God? Does God love them more than he loves me? Shouldn't I get some bonus points at least for showing up? But Paul says, look, it's not based on conditions. It's not based on circumstances. The unconditional, everlasting, agape love of God through Jesus Christ is a reality. But you've got to believe it, and you've got to receive it. 
But verse 37 is the key here because it kind of ties all of this together. And it shows through love and victory. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And there's something about the word love that I don't like. And it's the fact that it's in the past tense. God loved us. And it just is kind of a red flag for me. If you were talking to my wife and she says, my husband, I loved him, I'd say, wait a second here, what's going on? Let's move this verb into the present tense. Present and ongoing is what we're looking for. We're looking for the word loves, but it doesn't say loves, it says loved. It's past tense. But when I looked at that word more closely, I realized that it is actually in a tense which isn't just pointing to the past in general, but it's actually something that is pointing to a specific thing that happened in the past. So when Paul says, through him who loved us, he's pointing back to something specific, and that specific thing is the cross. We are more than conquerors. The victory is ours because of what Jesus did on the cross. Anytime you watch a movie that depicts the crucifixion of Jesus, there's something that I'm certain that people don't get. First of all, you see the religious leaders and they're plotting against Jesus and they're so jealous of him. And we think that they crucified him, but the religious leaders, they didn't crucify Jesus. And then you think, okay, Pilate. Pilate is the one who was afraid of what Herod would think if the people had an insurrection again. But Pilate, he wasn't the one that crucified Jesus. And the people that yelled out for him to be crucified, they didn't crucify him either. Or the soldiers, no one took his life. He laid his life down himself for your sin and for my sin. It's our sin that crucified Jesus. It wasn't those people. The last word that Jesus spoke on the cross was the Greek word teleestai. And it's used in a number of different contexts to mean different things. It's translated for us as it is finished. And the translation loses something because we usually read it in a flat, kind of unemotional voice. We just say, it is finished. But that would be like the losing head coach of the team just as the final seconds of the game are winding down and he turns to his assistant coach and he says, that's it, it's over, it's finished. But that's not what we're reading here. One of the ways that this word could actually be used was a cry of victory after a battle had been won. And they would say, the battle has ended, victory is ours, let the celebration begin. Years ago, we did a thing here on Good Friday where I played the part of Jesus and I was actually nailed to the cross. We had a neat way of working it. And when I got to this point, I just yelled it out. I can't do it with the microphone on, I'll scare you. But it is finished. It was a cry of celebration because he had completed his task. The cross is the place where the greatest battle of all was fought where God's love for you was forever determined and made clear. And at the cross, Jesus wasn't just declaring his love for you. He was also declaring victory for you because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
So that's where we put our hope. If you have never put your hope in that Jesus Christ, if you have not accepted that love, you're missing out on so much. Just talk to someone, talk to me, talk to my associate pastor, James Stevenson, or any of our leaders that are here. Talk to us so that we can share with you what the love of God is all about.